So we're once again here in the book of James today, and it's an amazing book. And as we go into it, I thought we'd start out today with something a little different. I'm going to read you a quote here from Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian author and psychologist, and uh, he's someone I hold in pretty high esteem. He writes about matters with uh, what I consider to be down-to-earth explanations. He does this while dealing with some of the most difficult and perhaps the most disputed issues of our times. And he writes from a very academic, but also a very traditional and understandable moral sense of intuition. And I appreciate him. And he says the following in his number one bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, which if you want to read a book that is not expressly Christian, but is very common sense and very well researched in what he puts in it, I, I recommend that book to you. It's, it's one of my favorites. But he says the following. You can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. You simply don't know what you believe before that. You are too complex to understand yourself. Such an interesting thought when you think about it. It it really is such an interesting concept. Peterson here is not just talking about what we see in the actions or lives of others, but what we learn about the latent or the deeper parts of ourselves in terms of what we do. This is far more than actions speak louder than words. This is, you will know me by my actions over my words, even over my perception of myself. And as we've been navigating the book of James, we have seen how James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's trying to help the early church, those first Christ followers, find a way forward through what we would call authentic faith practice. It's important for us to remember that's what's going on here in the book of James. It's a very deep and spiritual book, but yet it's also a very practical book. It's about uh, God's difficulty for the difficulty of the church to follow God's word, but it's about the, the severe mercy of God, that God's mercy and grace is present Even in the hard times, God uses the hard times to forge us and to change us and to bring us into alignment with who he is and what he desires for us. And we need to remember that God is at work and he is shaping us through difficult times to have a more authentic faith. That's what he was doing with the early church in the book of James as well. And many of these early Christians were Jewish converts and they're struggling because wherever they go, they're being persecuted. They have an unknown future. They don't know what the world's going to look like next year, let alone next week for them. And like us, in the midst of this pandemic, the racial unrest, the difficulty, the the talk about how we redefine our world, and while there may be good things that are redefined, what does that mean? Are we attacking the foundations of Western civilization? I certainly hope we're not. But many of us are asking the questions, what will tomorrow look like? And how will I be a Christian in that world? How will I follow Christ? And it's tempting for us, like the followers in James, to say whatever they needed to say or to do whatever they felt would work, to be completely pragmatic in how they live their lives. I'm going to say and do anything. I'm, I'm in survival mode. Have you ever had a time in your life like that? I think this 
happens to us perhaps in a lesser degree often in the workplace where our faith may be less welcome than it once were. It's easy just to play the game to make it through. It can happen to us early in life in school and we talk the talk and do whatever and keep our heads down and we don't talk about what we know about our faith. We don't want to look bad or look like we don't know what we're talking about if someone knows we're a Christian. There's lots of reasons we do this but we can be tempted to go through the motions and not really live out what we believe. And what happens when we do that, what James wants us to see today, when we go through the motions, when we try to make good on the expectations of others and not on who God has called us to be, we end up with a lifeless, joyless, self-serving existence with a dead faith, really no faith at all, But worse than that, as Peterson is warning us, we lose ourselves. You see, as Christians called to put Christ above all things. Christ is everything. Everything falls underneath that. We've talked about that. The book of James is making this clear. My marriage falls underneath of Christ. My my kids, my family falls underneath of Christ. My relationships, my work, my efforts, my provisions, my material possessions, all of this falls underneath the banner of Christ. Christ is over and above everything. And if we lose that, if we lose what we really believe, what God's word calls us to be, we lose our very selves. We don't know what we believe. We don't know who we are. So James is going to help us navigate this dynamic, this concern, the question of what we believe and therefore who we are in our lives. And what we're going to see about our complex, broken, and sinful selves. We're going to answer the question today, is my faith dead? Is it lifeless? Or can I see that my faith, while I'm imperfect, while I'm a sinful person, while I struggle, that there is a thread of vibrancy, of life, and of light in it? How can I know the difference between dead faith and living faith? Let's open up today. We're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, and we're going to learn about a faith, a purpose, a deep down inside way of living, even though we're complex, messy, sinful, spiritual people, how that first part of us needs to be established because all the rest of us spills out into life and into relationships from there. Last week, Vince talked about favoritism, and he talked about how sinful that is, that partiality, your Bible may call it the sin of partiality, and how We don't often see people for who they are in God's eyes. And now James is turning that spiritual magnifying glass around on ourselves, showing us that our words, our actions, our lifeless going through the motions outside of God's redeeming grace to change us, it not only does nothing for others, it does nothing for us. So let's take a look here at James 2 starting in verse 14 through 20. Let's read. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? This is God's holy word and James here today, he begins looking at dead faith and then he contrasts it with living faith and he really calls that out in verses 17 and 20 as we're going to say. James lets us know that dead faith is dead. You can beat a dead horse all you want. It's not going to do anything for you. Dead faith is useless. It has no value. And from the start, he wants us to understand exactly what he's saying. So in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works. And he puts out the question that all of this will be built around. Can such faith save him? Can it save him? And this goes back so deeply in what Christ did, what he taught, in the parables we've studied, at the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at. And Jesus, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he reminded them of this. It was a pretty powerful statement. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's a powerful statement. James here is making sure that we understand that many people have some level of belief, of some understanding of Jesus, but that's not the same as having faith in Christ what we would call real faith, tangible faith, or saving faith. And Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, we believe, as our Savior, as our Lord, the only Savior of the universe. And many times in our world, we'll hear people say, um, academics or people on television or whoever it might be, Jesus could be God or Jesus might be a way to God or maybe they even just give their assent or their agreement uh, to the idea of, well, maybe there's a God out there, like the old, you know, Bette Midler somewhere out there. Kind of. But that's not what we're talking about here, and that's not what James wants us to believe here. It's not the same as knowing Christ as your Savior and Lord. One concept is academic or ethereal or conceptual. It's head knowledge or something that might exist. The other is something you believe wholeheartedly that changes you. A lasting transforming commitments. What we believe isn't real faith until it changes who we are in how we live. And that changes not only our lives, but it will change the lives of those who may see us and watch our lives, who may doubt their faith or doubt the reality, could God exist? But As they see us, not only do we show who we believe God is, but as Dr. Peterson said, we define who we believe ourselves to be as well. And none of that comes to life until it becomes action in our lives. Otherwise, it's dead faith. It's empty faith until it comes to life. Consider the story of Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus in Scripture? A great teacher of the Old Testament law. And in John 3, Jesus and he have a meeting at night. And he comes because he's scared of being seen with Jesus. He's scared of what it'll cost him. 
And he says all these things to Jesus. He calls him rabbi or teacher. And he says, we know you must be from God in some way. You're doing all these miracles. And he, he butters Jesus up real good with what he says. But yet he's scared of being seen with Jesus. And though he refers to things in a separate way, he doesn't really say, I know who you are. I believe who you are, Jesus. In fact, it's not only changed my life, I'm going to use it to change the lives of other people. That's not where Nicodemus is. But later on, in John 19, Nicodemus is back. And he and Joseph of Arimathea boldly claim the body of Christ and lay it in Joseph's tomb. Even though as a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus is aware of who they are and what they're about, even though he knows that they're the ones that have really seen to the death of Christ, and he knows it could cost him his very life. And yet, we see a Nicodemus who's a different man. He not only boldly stands up for being a follower of Christ, he lays his life on the line over it. He knows now who he is. And for him, knowing and following Christ is above all, even his own existence. And as we see that Nicodemus, that's real and it's authentic faith. And he received that faith by watching Christ. And something happened where God captivated his heart and life. We don't have that recorded. But we see two different people. That's the kind of faith James is talking about here. Authentic faith, faith in action that proves to others and proves to your own soul something is happening that is transformational. That sort of faith the Gospels talk about, real, powerful, the kind of faith that changes lives. That's what we're talking about. That's what James says. Not everyone who says the words, who goes through the motion, really has a life that's been changed in the depths of their soul. That's a chilling thing to think about, it really is. But how do we know if we have that sort of faith, that authentic, loving faith? Well, it has to be love that is put into action. And it's the kind of love that we know when we serve other people. That's what we've been talking about in 2020 in the life of our church. Authentic and living faith is this. It's the kind of faith that first and foremost, above all things, will sacrifice, as Christ did, loving and serving others. Look here at Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. This is interesting. Love that serves. And to those that James was talking to in the early church, that kind of faith, that kind of faith is something new to them. Now remember, these are the ones who were coming out from underneath the legalism that Jesus fought in the parables we just studied. They were used to following all the rules. It didn't matter how they felt or how frightened or angry or stressed. As long as they just followed the rules, even when it hurt, God was going to see how hard they worked at it. And that was going to make all the difference. And in Galatians 5, Paul says, no. He says, if you're in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter if you followed all the rules since you were a little kid. And that's what he's talking about there. Whether you never followed any of the rules, he says, that's not what it's about. But when Christ captivates your heart and changes you, when he begins to transform your soul, 
You're going to be different in who you are. And as Vince talked about last week, how you see the world around you and how you love and serve other people. Faith working through love. That's what he's talking about here. That's different. There's no partiality. There's no separation. What matters is faith working through love. Even if you follow all the rules in your life from God's word, you think you're going to follow them, you're not going to be perfect about it. Or if you follow Dr. Peterson's 12 rules for life and you work really hard and self-actualize yourself, if you read every book in the self-help aisle, that doesn't mean you're going to have it all together because what changes your life is the presence of the Holy Spirit. When God captivates you, when you surrender, when he grabs on you and something is different, where no matter how hard you try to mess it up, God doesn't leave you where you are. He changes you from the inside out, and that spills out, like we talked about, into the life of others. Early on in his ministry, Billy Graham had a partner, a young evangelist named Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton was considered the superior evangelist to Billy Graham. When they were both young, they were founding youth ministry organizations. They were evangelizing. People were coming by the thousands to see Charles Templeton. He received kind of this award early on in his 20s of like the greatest Christian of the year kind of award of some kind. What a corny thing to do, by the way. But that's what they did. And Charles Templeton, he was on the cover of magazines. They were interviewing in newspapers along with several other evangelists, including his very good friend, Billy Graham. But something happens. Charles Templeton, despite all of his awards, all of his accolade, all that he seemed to be accomplishing, he announced that he was an agnostic. He never really had any life change. He never really had any spiritual vibrancy. And he went back to Canada where he came from. And his former partner in ministry, Billy Graham, went on. And Billy Graham talked to him and prayed with him and encouraged him. And Charles Templeton said, you know what? I don't really think there's anything to this. Nothing's really changed my heart and life. I never really, I'm not going to put Christ above everything. In fact, he became a scathing critic of Christianity in some ways. And sadly, his life fell apart. Late in his life, he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, the Christian author, who himself had been a great skeptic and come to faith. Maybe you've read his book, The Case for Christ, or seen the movie that they did about it, which is very, very well done. If you haven't seen it, it's often on streaming media like Amazon and Netflix. You should check that out. It's a great movie. It's very interesting. But Lee Strobel, of course, now a very strong leader in the Church of Jesus Christ, he wanted to go and talk to this man. He was struggling uh, with some of his mental capacity in his later years, but he was able to have a great conversation. He sat down with him, and he, he asked Charles Templeton, he said, well, well, who is Jesus to you? Is he just some moral person? I just, I, he just lovingly wanted to understand, and Charles Templeton said this, Jesus was the greatest and most moral person to ever live, and... As funny as it seems, I miss him dearly. And Templeton began to cry because he wasn't sure how to reconcile all of it. Deep down, he, he knew there was something more, but he just wouldn't let go into it. James is warning us against that 
that kind of faith that Charles Templeton had, that thinking about someone, thinking that they're worth emulating, thinking about them being the, the greatest and the most ideal person is not the same as saying Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, the Savior of the world. He didn't have saving faith. That's the question we're trying to answer today. Faith and works. James is talking about the same question. We want to know, is it dead faith or is it living authentic faith in our lives? Is it an authentic faith that's alive and vibrant or is it a dead faith? And how do we know the difference? That's what the early church, those coming out from that legalism, were struggling to understand. What's it mean? What's it look like? The faith that allowed Nicodemus to put his very life on the line. The faith that allows Christians in places like communist China where they're being carried off in the night even now and having their organs harvested for those that are suffering from COVID in the political class there, for all of those out there that think, you know what, I don't think the American system works well. Ask Christians in China how they feel right now. Ask the Weiger Muslims in China who are being carried off into prison camps how they feel right now. Christians face difficulty. People of different faiths even faith persecution. And what makes a difference for us as Christ followers, how do we know the kind of faith we have? How do we prepare for difficult times like Christians around the world face right now? How do we have the kind of faith that we act on even when it's costly? Because if we're all honest, there have been times even in small ways we've been challenged on our faith and perhaps we melted into the background. Do you ever see the meme of Homer Simpson when he goes back into the shrubs and disappears? I think all of us as Christians, if you don't know what a meme is, text somebody younger than you, they'll explain it to you. But a picture, there's a thing of Comer where as he's, and this is going to be Browns fans, about 5 o'clock today, they'll be going back into the, oh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Hey, this is your best chance, Browns fans. I'm undefeated as your pastor. My Steelers are undefeated. This is your chance. It is. It is. Best of luck to you, but not really. Okay, so... How do we know that we have the kind of faith where we would stand like Nicodemus did, like the early church is being called, to have that living faith where we don't hide back? How do we know now, before that time comes, if it ever comes in our lives, that we have that? James here lays it out for us. The fear over dead faith. In verses 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. This seems so simple, but it's not simple. I was thinking about this week, we're collecting these individual cereal boxes for bulldog bags and Though it's not expressly a Christian ministry, it's one of our missions we love here in the life of our church. Why? Because it does what James 2, 15 and 16. It's not that just food is enough. People need spiritual nourishment, but they need both. And when you do it, standing on the word of God and the love of Christ, people see that and they see there's no bait and switch. You're not just saying, here's some food. Now come to our church. We need you to help out with everything. But you know, I want you to know Christ because I want you to know Christ because he's the most important thing. Acting on faith. You see, part of Charles Templeton's critique on the church that 
caused him not to have faith was he saw so many Christians who knew all about Jesus but weren't living the kind of life that Jesus was calling them to live. That's what he found impossible to believe. Are we willing as the church to accept that there is something to Charles Templeton's critique of Christianity that we must address? I hope we are because James is addressing the very same thing here. In this passage, he's talking about those here, a brother or sister, someone who's a Christian, someone who is in faith, and they don't have the clothes they need, they don't have daily food. Some translations, if you're reading a Bible at home, may have the word destitute in there. They have nothing. And someone says to them, go in peace. Stay warm and be well fed. Go in peace was a common phrase that was used. It was a common phrase that was said in what we call the Second Temple, the first century church, when James was writing. James is one of the earliest books. and So go in peace in the biblical language and what we call Koine Greek would be what we call the middle voice, the reflexive voice. It's kind of a disconnected, disinterested voice. It's the voice you give when you're texting and someone asks you something and you give them an answer and you're not even really paying attention. I know this very well because I've done this. I struggle not to do this. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, okay, you know, they're heading out the door. Hey, have a good day. Have you done that to someone? People from my family are laughing at me right now, for those of you that aren't here, because I do it all the time. Disinterested, disconnected, isolated. I hope you find shelter. I hope you find food. Be blessed. You pass someone on the street that's hurting. Hey, you know, I'm sorry you're hurting. You know, be blessed today. That's what we would say in our world, especially down, you know, maybe down south a little further. Oh, be blessed. Have a great day. Or how about this one? I'll pray for you. Have we done that? And then you head off to the steakhouse. I think we've all done that. I work really hard when I tell someone that I'll pray for you, you've probably seen, I carry a little notebook around, a little spiral-bound notebook. When I say I pray for you, right away I write something down. I know Pastor Wally writes things down, and he tries to make sure he remembers and makes everyone feel personally loved and welcomed. I appreciate that so much because there's something about that that we want to make sure we do what we say, that we do pray, we do care. But we've all had those dead faith moments. We've all had it. The ones that the church is rightly critiqued for having when we say, I sure hope you get some help, but just not here because I'm too busy. That's what we don't say, but that's what we do. How important do we make people feel when we have those dead faith moments? When we, without even realizing it, do what Vince called last week, that sin of favoritism, that sin of partiality, that hard attitude where we favor others. And now we're seeing the other side of the coin where we actively really disfavor others. And the funny thing, they're both about the same thing. They're both me first. Me first. And verse 17, it's damning to us here. It really is. I, I read it and it hurts. It really condemns us. Faith that is alone. 
that doesn't have anything to back it up, that has no evidence, backed up by fake emotions, fake words of concern, whatever it is, it's dead. It's a mirage. It doesn't really exist. Maybe the words of Jesus are ringing in your ear right now. Many people will say, Lord, Lord, and he doesn't know him. It hurts my heart when I think of as a sinful person that I have done this and I want to make sure I don't do this again. It's not about me. And friends, that's partially how I think we know we have real and saving faith because it drives us to change and to do better. Verse 18 here. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. Now James here, he's trying to be a humble guy, but he's talking in the third person. He's talking about maybe an argument he'd be having with someone else. Someone says, well, I've got faith and, you know, well, you know maybe you've got works, but James says, nah, you can't say you have faith unless there's something going on that demonstrates it. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Dead faith here. Now James is going to contrast it, like we said at the beginning, with living faith, where others are loved and cared for. This is a challenge for us as a church, particularly in the COVID-19 landscape, to care for others. It's a challenge for us to actually get to know others. When we see somebody, to connect with them. Vince talked about this last week. We can't have that partiality, but if we have to put that aside and we see people the way God sees them, then we see them as people who have need and we need to find out who they really are and we need to do something about it because we won't know who we truly are until we do that. Until we do that. You say you have faith? Well, how can I see your faith if you don't have anything to show? Is it really even there? That's what James is saying. Is it alive? Is it vibrant? Then why can't I see it? What are you waiting for? As the world is changing right now, the church is going to have to answer this question. Wherever God takes you in your life, whatever situation you come up against, whether it's a difficult one, like the one Nicodemus faced, whether it's difficult like the early church James was talking to faith, uh, faced in their faith existence, whatever it is for me, whatever I experience where I go in life, how am I going to change lives and how I love and care for others and share the gospel boldly in how I live? Yes, in words. We're going to talk about that next week. Certainly in being careful with our words. And Vince is preaching that sermon because I stick my foot in my mouth so much I don't know if I'm qualified to preach that one. But also in actions and meeting the real and obvious need to change lives. That's what we're talking about today. Not to say all the right phrases, but to do something. To show righteousness, to show no partiality in how we live. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 sums this all up clearly for us. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. You can say all the right things. You can have all the right answers, but how are you living? 
How are you living? How are you giving? Yes, materially the church, but to the lives of others, how are you sacrificing for the gospel? If you can help, Scripture is clear, you should help and serve. Matthew 25 tells us where the world ends and what it's all about. Jesus tells us how it's going to go, and he talks here. We've read this all, and it's coming out of a parable. It says, sheep's to the right and goats to the left. I don't know why left-handed people always get the hardest time, though. I feel bad about that, being a lefty, but sheep go one way, and that's to heaven, and goats go the other way, and it's not to heaven. Sorry, goat fans. But look what it says here. Look what it says. For I was hungry, Christ says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you looked and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous that Christ is addressing here, that he's telling you, thank you for doing that. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the righteous judge, who comes back in power, and the majesty will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did it for me. The measure of this church is not complicated. How will this church know in years to come if it's successful? If lives are changed and the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth, lives are changed outside the walls of this place, do you think God might be doing some of this to get this through to the church? And by it, lives are changed here, inside the church. That's what James is telling the church, even there when they're on the run where they don't even know where they're going to settle Faith will be manifest, he says, in your lives, in your hearts, and in your actions. And as we'll see next week, it should be manifest in your words, not just what you say, but then how you say it. He brings this all back around. James says in verse 19, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. And James here is talking to these Jewish Christian converts about the Shema. The prayer, they said, morning and evening. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, the Lord is God and the Lord is one. That's how that starts out. He's saying, okay, and that's what set the Jewish faith and the Christian faith apart, are monotheistic. There is one God in three parts, the Trinity, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that. The, the, and we believe that God the Father, of course, is the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh, the, the true God of creation. James here is saying, you can say all the right prayers, you can follow all the right rules, you can do all that stuff. You believe God's one? Even the demons know that. And they're terrified. They're afraid in the depths of their soul. But yet you're not living your life as if you have any understanding of the God who should be above all in your life. You're not shuddering, James says. You're not, there's no fear of God in you. It's not changing who you are or how you live. You don't even know him. If you don't live that way, that's what he's saying. The God-fearing person, he wants to pray. He wants to live. Even when they fail, he or she says, man, I'm not doing this. If right now God's convicting you of this, then that's good. God is alive. 
As Dr. Peterson says, there's a self-awareness. If this weighs on your heart at all, don't lament it alone, but say, God, give me the guidance that we can live this kind of life, that we can serve. I don't want to be like the demons. They know who God is, but do they worship him? Of course not. They're terrified because they know he'll come back as we just read to judge the quick and the dead. How do we treat others? How do we treat the truth from God's word? Does it change us? James 20, he says, if it doesn't change you, he says, senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Useless. Romans 3, 18 puts it, uh, there's no fear of God before their eyes. God is not even in their, their vision and their heart. How do we take the love of God out to others? How do we know the difference between dead and living faith? It's how we live. It's what we do. If the Holy Spirit has grabbed a hold of your heart, then we really don't just hear the gospel. We always say, if only they would hear the gospel. People don't just hear the gospel, they experience it. This week, I invite you to pray this prayer. Lord, show me two ways this week, two different ways, to put my faith into action. That people would experience the gospel in my life. Wherever you are, friends, I invite you this week. Consider what it means to live out your faith because not only will that transform and change the life of someone around you, but it will define and change your very being and who you are. And then you will really know, we will all really know what we believe. Let's pray. Friends, that we would in every way belong to God. Lord, that we would, to you, surrender our hearts and our lives, our very existence, not just in what we know, but in how we live and how we give and how we sacrifice, that we would not be afraid to stand on your truth. And God, that we wouldn't worry about having all the right answers all the time, that that can come and it should come and we should study your word and we should know, but in the simplest ways, how we treat others, particularly those who can do nothing for us those who are hurting. That we would have sensitivity in our hearts and our souls to live for them. To give to them. To share with them. To sacrifice for them. God, if we would live generously in that gospel love that you would use us to not only change the world around us, but you would use our actions to change us. Because we believe that faith would be manifest and not only transform the lives of others, but transform us. God, that we would know that those changed lives who claim Christ, who have seen Christ, who know Christ, who are different people, that we would know that that's the measure of our church's success is people who have been changed by the gospel. And God, that when we do that, we're changed by the gospel too. Make that 
who we are and what we're about, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.